welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron. And I'm Rustin. Every two weeks, Rustin and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, and evolution. Yep, and this week we're talking about extremophiles, yeah? Absolutely, the most extreme. <laughs> if you don't recall, that was a TV show in the early 2000s on Animal Planet. It featured a very charismatic green, like a green blob guy. And to demonstrate how extreme the animals were, they would just like graft on different limbs to him and transform in all these weird different animal hybrids. There was so much messed up shit that happened to that man. He had a really miserable existence. My favorite memory is just a, a screenshot of the show, and it's just a poorly animated CGI green frog with the caption, but some animals are more extreme than others, with no context beyond that. <laughs> no, the one I always remember from when I was a kid was when they were talking about like a, a wide-mouthed frog, and they animated a proportional mouth onto that poor green man, and so he just has like a normal face from like the nose up, and his mouth just comes out like three feet from the sides of his face. <laughs> like, this is what this I mouth would look like that. on a person. And it looked, it looked nightmarish. I, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not sleeping tonight. This is terrifying. <laughs> Poor guy. He turns around for five minutes and then they've grafted bonobo limbs onto him or something <laughs> like that. Back in the good old days of Animal Planet. Yeah, I know. But he must have just shown up at work every day, just completely resigned to his fate, you know? Either that or they just handed him a bottle of whiskey as soon as he walked in the door, like, you're going to really need this today, pal. <laughs> the most extreme. This animal just explodes. <laughs> he just kind of uh, sadly lumbers into the recording studio. Well, at least I get put out of my misery. All right. So I'm up first. And I'm going to be doing my piece on a member of the shorefly family. Shorefly. Okay. Shoreflies, the family Ephydridae. Of course, they're known for living along shorelines. The larvae, like a lot of flies, are aquatic, and the adults are terrestrial and flying. But this family is already known for having some tough members that can live in hot springs, brine pools, septic tanks, and alkaline lakes. Wow. So all over the place. Yeah, they have a lot of tough members, but I didn't want to do a piece on the whole family. I decided to focus on, in my opinion, the toughest member of the family, or at least the coolest. Because while the others live in pretty extreme aquatic environments, this one actually lives in crude oil. Really? Okay, but has this been a, a more recent evolution, or is this something that it's always done? That's a crazy thing. It, this has been known for a very long time. It's criminally understudied. But most crude oil live is very far underground, right? So how do the flies access it? How do they find places to live? They actually live in naturally occurring tar pits, like the La Brea Tar Pit in California. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Still, that would really limit their range. It would, but I mean, it also, they have like no competition. <laughs> no one really wants to be in there. True. Anyways, the name gives it away. I'm discussing the petroleum fly. The species name is Petroli, and the genus name is still debated, so I'm just going to call it the petroleum fly. And like I said, this has been known for a very long time, but there just is not much on this animal, which is really sad because it's so cool. Yeah. You'd think there'd be a lot more research about the petroleum fly 
if only just to tell you how to keep it out of your petroleum. So this fly has been known to oil workers for centuries. They were always described as maggots found in the oil field. I mean, they, they are maggots. Just looking at it, you couldn't tell what type of fly it is. So they've been documented for a pretty long time. The first proper scientific documentation I could find was from George Compare, and he discovered one in Los Angeles. Now, over the years, there's been some research on them, but majority of my notes only come from two or three papers. Like, I'm really reading one paper on these guys coming out maybe every five to ten years. So people just really don't find them that interesting, huh? This is a shame, too. All right, well, explain why. All right, well, let's describe these. The adults are just a fly. If you looked at it, you could not tell what it is. Or no, you could tell it's a fly. You wouldn't be able to distinguish it from any other fly. Only about five millimeters or less than a quarter of an inch. Small, black, and otherwise very inconspicuous. The adults don't actually live in the oil. It's actually only the larva. The adults are usually found near pools of oil, whether it be natural or commercial, maybe something that people spilled. And they're still capable of walking on the surface of oil pools. It's thought that they have some unique secretion that allows this, but that's about all they do with the oil. The larvae, on the other hand, they're the ones that love it. The larvae are small, legless, faceless maggots, and they live just beneath the surface of the oil. They have several spiracles that actually poke up just at the surface, which allows them to breathe, although they are known to be capable of holding their breath for a long time. How long? I could not find out. No one has tested this. No one wants to drown maggots? Yeah, I, I guess not. As enticing as that sounds. Yeah, that sounds like a really entertaining day. You combine two things that are just incredibly enjoyable. <laughs> First, you have maggots, and then you have drowning. Oh, boy. Everyone's lining up for it. Sounds more like a nightmare than it does an actual work day. So these flies don't actually feed on the oil. I feel like when most people hear that, that's just... They assume that's what they do. No, they do regularly ingest it. You told me that these were petroleum flies, and I thought they, they ran on like little tiny internal combustion engines, powered all their muscles. There's little uh, smokestacks coming out the top of them. That's how you can follow them around. Yeah, they're contributing a, a very minimal amount to the climate crisis by burning all the oil in their bodies. So no, sadly, they don't feed on the oil. They do hmm. regularly ingest it. It just passes right through them. They actually feed on dead or dying insects that have landed in the oil. And like I said, they will probably never have competition for this. Pretty stable career right there. I wouldn't say probably because BP and Exxon are really doing their best to create more habitat for oil-loving animals. So it's only a matter of time, right? So it's just them. I guess everything has to adapt really quickly. Well, that is the nature of the Anthropocene. So, so these guys are tough. They got to be tough. They live in oil. Hot oil pools, by the way, up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, I read. They can tolerate a variety of nasty compounds. So one study found that the guts were filled with oil and asphalt, yet the larva suffered no adverse effects. They also found that they could tolerate mixtures of 50% xylene and turpentine mixed with equal parts crude oil. Both of these highly toxic in large quantities, by the way. I don't even think that was an experiment. I think, like you were saying, they were just drowning them for the hell of it. I think they just got frustrated trying to figure them out, and they didn't want to deal with them anymore. And then they were just trying to euthanize all the leftover maggots at the end of the study, and they just couldn't. They kept trying all these different things, and they were like, God damn it, die. And then eventually they were like, wait, we could do a whole another study on this. 
It's great. Yeah, they're just trying to kill him. They're like, ah, might as well get something out of it. Actually, that's a funny thing. When you put them in less viscous oil, they die. So one in particular, mineral oil, which, you know, really isn't that toxic. Is that because they need to, like, float in more viscous oil? Really? Not fully known. It's just it was theorized that they need a more viscous environment. They just can't really maneuver in a less viscous one. You can't put them in water, I'm guessing. They wouldn't know what to do. So they drown, basically? I don't know. if I guess they drown. Maybe they're unable to access the surface. They don't have gills. Well, yeah. Being unable to access the surface generally results in drowning for <laughs> organisms that can't okay. breathe underwater. Well, maybe they can't break the uh, surface tension for some reason or another. I don't know. Uh, I found nothing more on this. Just one little note. They just like prey on our little bugs that get stuck in the oil? I don't think they... I'm pretty sure just bugs. I didn't find any accounts of them feeding on larger things, like maybe a, some poor crow tripped. Or maybe a guy. I don't know. No, I found no accounts of that. Largely just insects that are falling there. Okay. So they don't scavenge. They just consume... No, they'd eat dead insects. I'm pretty sure any insect that falls in oil is not going to be alive for very long. In their case, the line between carnivore and scavenger is pretty blurred. It's just a matter of time of how quick they get there. Whatever they're eating is moving very slowly. <laughs> yeah. If at all. No, but I mean, like, if some very unlucky rat just stumbles into the tar pit and dies, would they feed on the rat? Or Unknown. I found no literature to back that up. Hmm. So what else does the literature actually say about them? Well, uh, there's a little bit. So like I brought up, you thought this maybe was some recent evolution of flies built for a changing and polluted world, Anthropocene. Well, oil pools are naturally occurring, and they're by no means a recent creation called fossil fuels for a reason. So these guys have probably been around for a very long time. I mentioned that they were found in the La Brea Tar Pits of California. I don't know if you've heard of anything about them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're known for holding a large amount of well-preserved fossils. Yeah, that's primarily where I've heard about them. Yeah, so those tar pits have been around for a very long time. It's safe to say they've been around just as long. And while they're primarily documenting California, they've been reported in Cuba and Trinidad as well. So the exact range of this species is really it's not known at all there might even be several petroleum fly species it's right that was going to be my next question how do we know that these are all the same species and not just like individual fly species that are evolving convergently i don't know if you've ever taken an entomology course but trying to identify a maggot to the species level is probably the worst experience i would not wish upon my worst enemy you have this faceless legless lump that you probably already squished fondling, trying to get a better view under the microscope. Okay, but... So if you want to spearhead that effort, go right ahead, but there's not... No, no. <laughs> there's not high demand for it. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a colossal investment of time that I don't want to make, but you'd think you could just wait until they become flies and then they're far easier to identify, right? So with aquatic insects, sometimes the adults can't be paired with the larvae, because the only way to know for sure is to take the larva and witness them metamorphosize into the adults. And sometimes you cannot do that in captivity. They just won't do it. It's not the right conditions. 
that's actually a major thing with aquatic entomology. Sometimes you can't match them. Or sometimes you have two species that get merged together afterwards when you finally do figure it out. Of course, genetic testing is an option, but with how diverse insects are, that's just a lot of time and money I don't think people want to go through. That's true. Gen- really detailed genetic testing can be quite expensive. Yes, especially with insects. There's so many of them. Yeah. Like I said earlier, their taxonomic position in the family isn't certain. I actually found two different genuses that they were placed in. That's why I didn't even bother mentioning the genus name, because for all I know, it could change in another 10 years. What if like all maggots just came from the same species and then went through puberty in dramatically different ways and became all these different flies? Wasn't there a Soviet scientist that thought that was a thing? I think so. I know he hated the field of genetics. He thought that you could just influence animals or plants and they become something else. I was mostly joking, but... No, no, that was a thing. It's going to drive me insane. I have to look it up now. Trofim Lysenko. That was it. Lysenkism. That was his thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember he got to spearhead all these agricultural efforts, and it was found that their crop yields were decreasing. Because of this guy? He didn't believe in selective breeding. He didn't believe in genetics, survival of the fittest, anything like that. He thought that you could just will like a pea plant to develop into wheat under certain conditions. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Anyways, uh, so back to the flies. Taxonomic position, unknown, but the family is already known for having larvae in extremely harsh conditions. If you can handle like sewage and hot springs, I guess oil isn't too far-fetched. So uh, the ancestor of these flies just took advantage of these naturally occurring oil pools feeding on dead or dying insects, and they're still around. I think they're doing pretty well. And natural history-wise, that's that's it. Uh, how long they live, what the adults eat, if the adults eat at all, predators, etc., ecology, still a mystery. It's thought that they spend their entire lives as larvae in oil. They form pupas, maybe at the edge of the oil pools. They emerge as adults and repeat the cycle. That's ridiculous, though, that, like, as much money as we've invested into petroleum and as big of an industry as that is that we don't know that much about a species that lives in petroleum. So that may be true about all of its ecology, but there is some research into their adaptations, how they survive being in the oil. Okay. So what do we know about that? So we know one reason they can tolerate oil so well is the presence of a membrane lining in their digestive tract. And what this does is it restricts oil from entering the ridges of the digestive tract and it just passes right through, but it allows food particles to enter. So it's selective. So is it just extremely hydrophilic then? So that the that way the, the oil just passes through and can't absorb into the actual tissue? I really don't know that. Uh, All I know is it's documented that they have these membranes and it's thought that they're very restrictive with the oils. Fascinating. But another helpful feature is their microbiology. So all animals possess bacteria in their digestive tract and these guys are no exception. But theirs, of course, is not only tolerant of oil, but some can actually break down hydrocarbons. So a lot of bacteria can do this. But these are capable of breaking down asphaltines and polyaromatic hydrocarbons, 
component is often found in crude oil. These bacteria can produce a hydrocarbon emulsifier, which aids in the degradation of oil pollutants. So they're used in bioremediation? It's thought that they can be. Now, this is still very much the first step in the process, and these bacteria themselves can't do it, but it's thought that the right cocktail, you mix enough of these different bacteria together, and then maybe they can do bioremediation. So the process of removing pollutants from the environment. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. I love hearing about bioremediation. It's a really fascinating subject and obviously super important. Mm -hmm. And that there's a lot to study out there. I mean, we do have bacteria that can break down plastics and other compounds, but it's still, I think, a fairly recent field. Yes. Yes. But definitely emerging and growing fast. As it should. We need it. <laughs> yeah. We need a lot of remediation. That's that's not up for debate, I don't think. So the bacteria don't actually live off of the oil, and they don't actually help the fly either. They're just sort of present inside the fly. They didn't find any evidence of symbiosis. It's more so the bacteria live inside the fly because it's a high nitrogen environment from all the fly's waste, much more than the oil itself. So that's where the bacteria concentrates. Oh, so the bacteria just kind of hang out and the fly and the fly larvae just kind of don't care that they're there. It's cozy in there. It's cool. Hmm. So for the fly larvae, it's kind of like having a weird group of pimples. They're there, but they're not really doing anything. They don't really hurt. I mean, if they're inside your colon, you wouldn't be any the wiser. That too. <laughs> that too. At least until you had a colonoscopy. But no one's giving a maggot a colonoscopy, so... So, the bacteria don't benefit the fly. The bacteria do benefit slightly from the fly, but it's not really symbiosis. It's more... They're just there, not helping or hurting. Okay. They're just... They're just stowaways. Like I said, their enzymes by themselves is not enough to clean up oil. What's important is that their enzymes can function in oil. So you might have bacteria that can break down oil, but these enzymes might not work in oil itself. It's the wrong environment. So all their proteins can function in that environment, and that's why they're being looked at. So like I said, not the solution to the puzzle, but a potentially very important piece. You think that if we had like a perfect solution to this problem, if it existed, it would have already been found. But in reality, nature doesn't really provide those kind of magical solutions or those magic pills that just solve the problem instantly. No, they do have a lot to be studied and a lot can be learned from it, but it's it's a process. For sure. Besides that, the bacteria were also found to be incredibly antibiotic resistant. I didn't get the extent of that, but I think they're resistant to almost every major antibiotic on the market today making research into their genes potentially worthwhile especially if you could combat the growing resistance to antibiotics and bacteria which is a major problem right now sure sure yeah, that's a ticking time bomb yeah well what's interesting too is that bacteria will really only like focus on being resistant to select group of antibiotics at a time it is costly for them to maintain antibiotic resistance so they're not going to maintain resistance to a bunch of different antibiotics that aren't present. So in theory, we could just like cycle through a huge arsenal of antibiotics through time. 
but that's not how we do it at all. For particularly bad infections, that's what you have to do. You have to do a cocktail, mix them all together. Sure, you feel horrible afterwards, but you got a bad case of tuberculosis is what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah, you got to make sacrifices, I guess. And besides that, that is unfortunately really it about these guys. Like Google Scholar, within the second page, I wasn't even finding results anymore. It was just citations that they existed. Really? Yeah, it was uh, It was sad, unfortunately, because they've been known since at least the 1800s. Maybe if they come out with more research, we could do an update on them. I would love that. That would want nothing more than that. Uh, I do want to say one thing about them is that I think this is a major missed opportunity for big oil companies because this is the perfect mascot. These are little maggots that love oil spills. Get them registered as an endangered species and suddenly big fossil fuel lobbyists are a conservation group. They're just restoring habitat for the poor endangered petroleum fly. Aaron, I I think you'd really struggle to find another person on any side of the fossil fuel debate who thinks that's a good idea. They should put me on marketing. Not to mention, think how easy it is to make a costume for these. They're brown maggots. You just need a guy in a dirty sleeping bag. Have him hop around with a sign that says, I love oil. Yes, because that's the animal you really <laughs> want associated with your brand. A maggot. <laughs> look, look like a big hopping turd. <laughs> you could put it outside of Exxon. Okay, all right, all right, all right. If that's what Wawa, your tur- if that's highs, what your turd looks like, you got serious problems. Your turd should not be pale and white. They're actually brown when they're full of oil. Uh, when they're dead, they're white, but they're usually filled with oil. Oh, okay. Well, you didn't say that. I made there wasn't much to describe. It's a maggot. Anyways, you could anytime there's a sale on gasoline, you put one poor janitor outside in the sleeping bag costume, have him hop around for a little bit, and people will be lining up around the block. Okay, but imagine how how shitty that's going to be for the janitor, no pun intended, because he spends his entire day just cleaning up poop, and then as soon as he gets a break from that, what does he He do? Become the poop. He gets to dress up like a turd. That's just mean. That's that's cruel. Like, why would you do that to him? Okay, it could use a little polish, but I'm saying there's a big opportunity. I disagree. I think this is fool's gold. Aaron is serving you straight pyrite, and you should completely ignore it. Other than that, the larvae of the petroleum fly are officially only one of two animals, to my knowledge, that have been documented to swim in tar pits. The other's people. A person. It's one guy. He's a police sergeant and a diver. He actually had to go into the La Brea tar pit to retrieve a piece of evidence to help solve a murder. And he made it back out? Yeah, he made it back out. Did an interview about it. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yep. Yeah. Good for him. So, two animals. Uh, people and petroleum flies. How about that? All right. Yeah. Cool. And that's the story of the lovely little petroleum fly. There's... I really wish I had more to present on it, but I'm pretty scraping the bottle, the bottom of the barrel there. Oil barrel. That's uh, how I'm getting the flies. True. It's also a seriously missed opportunity to not call this animal the Rockefeller fly. <laughs> oh, that could have been the species name. That's oh what my I'm God. saying. If they research it, 
and it's actually multiple species. That's a golden opportunity. Name each one after a different oil tycoon. It is, but like the Rockefeller fly really just flows off the tongue, you know? It does. Yeah, I'd study that. That's a really cool name. I'm proud of myself for that one. I'll give you points for it. All right, cool. So, we're moving on to my most extreme. Yep, what you got for me? Okay, so when you pitched this episode, I kind of figured that we'd both be talking about some kind of bacteria. Because if you want to talk about organisms that really exemplify extreme survival skills or behavior, you're really going to talk about a lot of microorganisms. Yeah, it's inevitable. Right. And bacteria make up a huge portion of that group. And I wasn't wrong because you talked about a bacteria for a lot of that segment. And at least for me, I can guarantee that at least 50% of this episode will be about bacteria. Now I know it's going to be 100%. And in some ways, I think this is a good thing. Like we've done about 25 episodes of this podcast at this point. How many of them have we done about microorganisms? That's true. They've been lacking. Right. This is likely due to the fact that both Aaron and I are quote unquote big bio people because we like to focus on larger scale applications of biology like ecology and you know natural history and evolution. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore the macro scale either. Like all of us know how much that can impact each and every person, especially after COVID. It deserves a little more attention from us, I think, going forward. Okay, yeah, you're right. You're right. We do skirt by it. But the bacteria I've chosen to focus on not only lives in an extreme environment here on Earth, but actually could also provide clues about other extreme environments that humans haven't even encountered. Do you have any ideas about what bacteria I'm going to discuss? It's a bacteria. I don't know any of them by name. E. coli? That's all I got. So these bacteria are a type of red algae known as Cyanidium caldarium. Of course! It was my second guess. (laughs) Shut up. Um, They live in the Rio Tinto in Spain. Do you know anything about this? Uh, Tinted river? I guess it's from the bacteria. Yes, actually. So... (laughs) (laughs) That's about it. It's all my context clues. Bit of background about the river itself. The Rio Tinto is in southern Spain. It's about 60 miles long, and it eventually flows into the Mediterranean Sea slash Atlantic Ocean. Because it's in southern Spain, the line is a little bit blurred there. It exits into that larger body of water where the city of Huelva is located. The river itself is roughly the size of the Potomac River here in the United States. And I base that on the discharge from each river, but the discharge will vary quite a bit depending on the season. So in the wintertime, there's more rain. The river is much larger. In the summertime, it dries up. In certain areas, it's not even flowing. So it really varies, but that kind of gives you an idea of how big the river is. What is unique about this river are the activities which have occurred in its watershed. So this area of southern Spain has very rich deposits of heavy metals including iron, silver, gold, and copper, all of which have been enormously useful for numerous societies in the last few thousand years, really. You consider that this area was the birthplace of a lot of Bronze Age societies, the Romans, um, the Muslims eventually invaded, you know, the Iberian Peninsula. Spanish were there for a while, obviously. After the formation of, of what we now know as Spain under their monarchy, They relied on the metals from this area, and the mining continues up until this day. Problem with this is that 
as anyone who's familiar with mining knows, the runoff from mines is very toxic. It's specifically, it's really acidic. And so this has been occurring in this particular drainage area for this river for the last few thousand years. The river itself has become extremely polluted for a couple millennia now. And that's demonstrated in its name. For those of us who don't speak Spanish, I myself do not. Rio Tinto means stained or dark red river. So basically tinted river. And this is because the river is not clear or brown because of, you know, sediments in the water or green because of algae that are growing there. The river is actually red. It looks like a blood vessel that's just running through the south of Spain. It's really, really crazy looking. So I'm guessing no fish live in this? No, 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 not at all. Fish cannot survive. Uh, amphibians definitely can't survive. No, they're they're kind of weak. Love them, but they're not very tough. Yeah, as far as I know, there aren't any macroinvertebrates that live in this river. Um, it's possible that they could. There could be some acid-loving flies that have maggots that live in this river, but... I wouldn't count against it at this point. Right. They live in petroleum, so maybe. Who knows? I don't know about any of them that live in this river. It's very toxic. And in case you guys think that I'm lying, we'll actually post a picture of this river on the Twitter page because it's very striking. You said the size of the Potomac? Roughly. A lot of output. It's a little smaller. I'm like, Well, I'd say the size of the Potomac, like upstream of D.C., so south of D.C., there are there are more inputs and it becomes a larger river. But upstream of D.C., that river, like about that size is what you're it's looking It's a lot at. to be discharged into the ocean. It is. And again, this has been going on for millennia because of all the mining activity. And in the upper half of its reach, the pH of the river is usually below three. Yeah, there's nothing living in there. I, I need, really need to let that sink in and put it in perspective because the, for those who are unfamiliar with the pH scale... The pH of pure water is 7, and the pH of the human body is generally around 7.37.4. This water is about 50,000 times more acidic. It's logarithmic. Pure water. Yes, exactly. The pH scale is logarithmic. Each number represents a factor of 10. So in many ways, this river is a cautionary tale of just how extensively our actions can impact ecosystems, especially rivers, because all of the, our activities affect those streams because all the water flows eventually into the same place. Here in America, we tend to look at how we've impacted streams in the last two or 300 years, you know, since colonialism happened and especially since the Industrial Revolution. What really is unique about Rio Tinto is that it can show us just how dramatically we can impact a river if our actions are unchecked for thousands of years and not just for hundreds of years. But life still endures in a system that we've messed up this dramatically, which brings me to these bacteria. So the microorganisms which live in Rio Tinto are known as acidophiles. In other words, they thrive in highly acidic conditions. Um, generally, this specific variety prefers a pH of between two and three. They can survive in conditions as, as acidic as 0.5, and they can survive in conditions as basic as five, but two to three is usually their sweet spot. So again, to put this in perspective, this is kind of like living your whole life in a pool full of straight lemon juice. So I like a nice cold glass of lemonade. 
but this is really taking it to a truly ridiculous extreme in terms of acidity. Really, what's remarkable about this species, at least to me, is that its internal pH is neutral. So they live in these really acidic conditions, but their the pH within their cells is actually not that different from our own, despite the fact that they live in an environment that is really so toxic. So they have a really good buffer system. Yes, exactly. So they, they do this by having a ton of proton pumps around their cellular membranes. So they're able to expel all of these uh, protons, which would lower the acidity in their internal systems uh, back into their environment. And they also have a different composition within their cell membranes. So their membranes are much more rigid than a normal cell. So a normal cell has a different composition of lipids. So sometimes the those lipids are arranged so that the cell membranes are a little bit more flexible and more flexible membranes allow more things to pass through them and into the cells. Other times those membranes are more tightly packed and so they're more rigid. And the membranes of these particular bacteria are very, very rigid because they don't want any of those proteins from the external environment getting into their relatively pH neutral internal environment. Through mechanisms like these, they're, they're able to incredibly maintain a pH of about seven inside their cells. All of this allows cyanidium caldarium to live in an environment that humans have made in uninhabitable, uninhabitable for pretty much everything else. Like, think about that. We've messed this river up so much that almost nothing else can live there. Except for these bacteria. It kind of sucks. Is They're going to be sad when people want to fix the river. Imagine a town council meeting and everyone's talking about how much they hate how polluted this environment is. And they kind of stand up and go, I don't know. I don't think it's too bad, <laughs> personally. <laughs> I mean, my interactions have been pretty good. I'm just speaking for me here, though. They're like the Frank Reynolds bacteria. They just love living in the trash. Anyway. To me, this really demonstrates that no matter what humans do to the planet, something will manage to survive and thrive. Which speaks to a, an issue that I personally have with how environmentalism is marketed to a lot of people or how it's viewed. Because we're not, it's not necessarily about trying to preserve the planet itself. We're trying to preserve the version of the planet in which humans can live. So it's not as much about protecting random endangered species as much as it is about making sure humans can live sustainably on the planet for the foreseeable future. Don't get me wrong, those endangered species still play a huge role, but the role that they play is in maintaining these environments that we rely on, right? So I feel like a lot of environmentalism is very focused on animals and plants and things that a lot of people don't really have a connection to, but there's a serious human component to this movement that I think a lot of people don't really grasp. By preserving these endangered species and their environments, we also preserve our own future too. And I, th I feel like sometimes people don't realize that. These bacteria also have lots of applications for bioremediation purposes, much like the petroleum bacteria. There we go. Coming back around. I was curious about that because I thought you were saying, they're going to say that they buffered the environment around them at first. 
But no, they're kind of just taking all the acid in and pushing it back out. Really? Yeah. If anything, they're not fixing the problem. They're passing it on to the next guy. Right. And they do such a good job of pushing out protons that when they live in an environment with a normal or relatively quote unquote normal pH, they just expel all the protons and die. Like this system that keeps them alive in acidic conditions kills them at higher pHs, which is interesting to think about. Anyway, as far as their bioremediation purposes, we can sometimes use bacteria which thrive in toxic environments to make them more habitable by using their byproducts to create an environment suitable for a wider range of life. So the bacteria consume the toxic chemicals and we use what's left to repair the ecosystem and make it habitable once again. There's some belief that we can use you know, a lot of the mechanisms that these bacteria employ to kind of design bacteria that would be useful in um, cleaning up an environment, not unlike Rio Tinto. It's kind of like the petroleum bacteria where the bacteria themselves probably aren't going to be useful in their current condition, but they can provide really valuable clues. What is interesting, though, is that a lot of their enzymes aren't necessarily useful for this purpose because... Their enzymes are, again, designed to operate at a relatively normal pH because that's where they keep their internal and that's how they keep their internal environment. Their enzymes don't have to operate at a really low pH because their enzymes don't operate outside of the cellular membrane. So you couldn't really separate the enzymes from the bacteria. Right. And put into a polluted environment. Right. Exactly. The enzymes would just kind of, you know, denature and cease to function. Anyway, it's not just bioremediation that these bacteria are really useful for, because they're also useful for field of astrobiology, which I didn't really know that much about before I started researching this episode. And I didn't know it was a thing because the, the name of the field implies that we've already, you know, encountered aliens. Unless you're listening to conspiracy theories, this probably hasn't happened. Why does astrobiology exist? Well, that's because we still want to try to research how life could occur on other planets. And it turns out that these bacteria provide some really valuable clues because of the environment where they live. The Rio Tinto has a lot of chemicals are similar to those on Mars. Compounds, especially uh, gyrosite, which is an iron and potassium rich sulfate compound that are present in the river, are also present on Mars. If we can understand how life exists in the Rio Tinto, we can also understand how life could potentially exist on Mars where a lot of these same compounds are present. So understanding the extremophiles in this river can also help us understand life on other planets. Just have to get over the uh, hurdle with uh, liquid water. Seems to be in short <laughs> supply on Mars right now. Well, yeah. A little obstacle to get over there. There's not a lot of that there, sure. But... If there was. The astrobiologist, he just looks at one of these under microscopes and goes, oh, that's an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this thing. This thing's weird. Speaking a different language. It's not even speaking another language. It just looks weird. <laughs> it's really crazy to think about the fact that we've essentially accidentally engineered a river in Spain that can provide clues about life on other planets. That's cool. It's a it's a cool little experiment that hopefully we don't replicate again. Hopefully it's a one and done. We don't go through a lot of these. Although I do feel a little upset just 
the loss of everything that once lived there that we'll never know. That's really true. The river itself is kind of is a sad story. I mean, it's of pretty decent size. Sure, it had all kinds of unique wildlife there. And yeah, never know. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale and a really important one, too, because when we think of these really extreme environments, we think of places like the poles. We think of places like hot springs or Death Valley, you know, these naturally occurring extreme environments. We don't necessarily think about or we don't at least don't like to think about the fact that humans can create environments that are just as extreme. And in some cases worse, the Cuyahoga River has caught fire numerous times. I feel like people don't talk about that enough. At least not outside of Ohio. Still, you can catch a fish out of there. Not one you want to keep, probably. No, not one you want to keep. It's a, probably a really funky catfish, but still something kicking around at the bottom. Well, so the thing about the Rio Tinto is that these conditions really only exist in the upper half of its reach. Toward the lower end, you start having inputs from other rivers. You start to have more mixing with tidal water from the Mediterranean. So that water isn't quite as toxic and you do have fish and things and uh, other organisms that can survive in those waters. But at least in the upstream, no one want to eat them. Probably not. But at least in the upstream half, most of the supplies that I've been talking about applies to the upstream half, the downstream half, mm-hmm. not quite as red. That's probably the upstream has all the influence from runoffs from the mines. I'm guessing. Correct. Which isn't to say that the downstream is unaffected, but there are other effects that come into play to mitigate the effect of the mining. That's my piece about the Rio Tinto and the bacteria that live there. Yeah, really cool. I'm going to have to look up some photos after this. Yeah, definitely put one of those on Twitter because the photos of the river are crazy. <laughs> also have to put the picture of the guy with the big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please find a picture of that. <laughs> that would be so nostalgic for both of us. <laughs> so... With both of our pieces done, what are you thinking about for our next episode? I think it's already been decided because the next episode is coming out around Halloween. Oh, so you want to do another Halloween episode? It was popular. I like doing it. Round two. All right. Let's do it. Uh, spooky themed. Spooky themed episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got a few ideas I can uh, I can pursue. Yeah, I, I got leftovers from last year. It'll be good. Definitely. Definitely. All right. So. Tune in next time for Halloween part two. But in the meantime, Aaron, do you want to take us out? Yes, I will. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like or review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can find us on X. It's not Twitter anymore. You dropped that a couple times. You can find us at Soup Pot Podcast on there, or you can email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. All right. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.